Well, today we are continuing our 13-week sermon series through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The Apostle John was likely an old man by the time he wrote these letters, and he writes as a spiritual father to an audience that he repeatedly refers to as his little children. He informs his readers that they are living in the last hour. But by that, he does not mean that the physical universe is coming to an end. Rather, John is talking about the end of the old covenant world, the end of the old covenant era. There was a seismic shift taking place as the kingdom of God expanded beyond the borders of Israel. The early Christians were facing persecution from the outside and division from the inside. And so John offers a number of different reminders and encouragements to these churches in crisis. And today, John is going to emphasize the familial nature of the church, which gives us strength and support to withstand the corrupt desires and corrupt influences of the world around us. To begin, let's, let's address this poem in verses 12 to 14. What are these verses doing here? I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for, for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So the first thing we notice is that John addresses three different groups of people, and he, addre- he addresses each group twice, little children, fathers, young men. Now, John says some pretty important things to each of these groups. I'm, I'm particularly struck by what John is willing to say about children. Your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. But, but rather than dissecting each of these statements, I want to focus on the big picture of this poem, all right? John is speaking in familial terms. He is writing to his little children as a father in the faith. As we say often at Sojourn, the church is a family. If Christians are sons and daughters in relation to a common heavenly father, then Christians are brothers and sisters in relation to one another. In Christ, we are all siblings, and our union with Christ runs deeper than blood. This has major implications for how we ought to live as the church. On one hand, I think we can sometimes be too hasty in breaking fellowship with one another. We don't actually prioritize leaning into our identity as family, and so we entertain the thought of leaving and renouncing our church long before we would entertain the thought of leaving and renouncing our family. But it it runs the other way too. It can be easy, be honest, it can be easy to project an image to our fellow church members that the people living in our home know is false. Or or in other words, it can be easy to forget that our spouses and our children and our parents and our roommates are actually fellow believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. They are just as deserving of our best, most loving, most patient, most dignified selves. I am, I'm very guilty of this, I think. Sometimes I speak to my wife and children in ways that I would never speak to any of you. And I'm pretty sure I am not alone in that. 
One more takeaway. Because the church is a family, we should be a people with diverse levels of spiritual maturity. To use John's language, there should be little children and young men and fathers within the congregation. And this is why we are hoping to cultivate intergenerational neighborhood parishes. We don't organize our community by life stage because we are an incomplete and anemic community without the contributions of everyone, from children to young adults to older saints. The world we live in, the world that John is calling us not to love, overvalues people in the prime of life. It undervalues children and it undervalues the elderly. But the Bible commands respect for our elders. And the Bible says the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. The church is called to be a society within our society that values the contributions of everyone, regardless of age, regardless of wealth, regardless of competencies, regardless of ethnicity. When things are working properly, nobody gets undervalued within the church. We need, we, we actually need the life and joy and playfulness of children. We need the energy and zeal and strength of young adults. And we need the perspective and patience and wisdom of the elderly. The church is a family. Okay? Why does that matter? Why does church as family matter for us? Well, there are many reasons, but here in chapter 2, John moves from addressing the church as a family to warning them not to love the world. So in opposition to the family of the church is this thing John calls the world. Church as family matters if we're actually going to resist and withstand the corrupt desires and corrupt influences of the world around us. If we're going to swim upstream, if we're going against the culture, We need to belong to a strong community. We need church as family. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay. We just read from the Gospel of John, right? John 3.16. That was written by whom? Not Not a trick question. Same author. Same author. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. But here in 1 John chapter 2, we are told, Do not love the world. So in some places, the world refers to the created order that in Genesis chapter 1, God pronounced good. But in other places, the world refers to humanity organized in opposition to God and his vision for the kingdom. God so loved the world that he sent his son. And the son loved, so loved the world too. But what was the character of the son's love for the world? What did, what did Jesus' love for the world look like? If by love we mean total unconditional acceptance then actually Jesus did not love the world. That's our society's definition of love, but it was not Jesus' definition in practice. Jesus so loved the world 
that he died so that it would change into something better. Jesus died for the world as it was, but not to leave it that way. He did not die to maintain the status quo. He died to recreate the world into something far better. Thus, Jesus so loved the world that he resisted its temptations and seductions. Jesus so loved the world that he refused to be conformed to it. Jesus so loved the world that he purposely walked against the grain of its systems of power and influence. Jesus so loved the world by opposing it and challenging it. Why? Well, Because again, Jesus knew it could be better. Jesus had a vision for the kingdom of God on the earth, and to the degree that what he saw didn't measure up, he was willing to say so. And he was willing to demonstrate a better way. And that took courage. It took courage then, and it takes courage today. We've said this a number of times over the past few weeks, but for John's immediate audience, I think the world referred to the old covenant system that stood in opposition to the Messiah. It stood in opposition to the victory of Christ and the progress of the kingdom. But for us, I think the world can refer to any religious, cultural, political, social, or economic system that is organized in opposition to God and his vision for the kingdom. For example, what is racism if not another form of Judaizing? Hang with me there. Remember, the the Judaizers were followers of Jesus who wanted to keep the old system. Racism takes us back to an old covenant system that divides us according to what we look like and where we come from. The Jim Crow laws created a system of clean and unclean. So racism, to use John's language, is antichrist. Anytime we are tempted to treat people according to the corrupt standards of this world, we are reverting to an outdated system. We are, fa- we are failing to live into the new world that Jesus has established, a world of unity and harmony and holiness and wholeness, an international shalom of all the institutions on the earth. The church alone is responsible for stewarding that vision. God's vision for the world. And and when we align ourselves with the world, we cease to steward that vision. Specifically, John says there are three aspects of the world that we are not to love. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. First, what are the desires of the flesh? I think this just refers to an excess desire for otherwise good things. For instance, Food and drink are good things, but the excessive desire for food and drink is a sin we call gluttony. We could apply the same principle to clothing or shelter or alcohol or sex or any of the good gifts that God gives to us that can become all-consuming 
if we are not careful to partake with wisdom? What about the desires of the eyes? According to St. Augustine, the, the theologian, not the grass, um, the desires of the eyes include not only the seduction of beautiful things, but also our fascination with horrible things. So we succumb to the desires of the eyes when we look at pornography, but we also succumb to the desires of the eyes when we slow down to look at the wreckage of a car accident. And lastly, pride of life. What does John mean by pride of life? This refers to the excessive desire for excellence, status, honor, and reputation. In our day, John would almost certainly rebuke our celebrity culture. And that exists both inside the church and outside the church. Or he might point out that the advertisements in your social media feed are designed to promote in you the pride of life. They are designed to undermine your contentment and make you think that purchasing their product is going to give you status. And so John seems to think that the world, as he's using, using it here, um, that we are called to resist is fundamentally a collection of various desires. That's what human culture is. It's the cumulative effect of shared dreams and shared aspirations and shared lusts. Thus, we should evaluate the world around us, not only by what it does, but also by what it desires. It's perfectly permissible for Christians to own iPhones and to drink craft beer and to follow the Astros and to engage with social media and to watch Netflix. But even as we participate in those things, we should take care to understand the desires that are embodied by those things. Again, take Netflix, for example. It's permissible for us to watch Netflix, but it's wise to ask ourselves, what kind of person does Netflix want me to be? How do the shows I watch shape my own desires? What, what are the desires that fuel the existence of Netflix? And how are those desires distorting the way I relate to the world? Or again, it's permissible for us to own smartphones. But it's wise to ask ourselves, what kind of person do app developers want me to be? How does my phone shape my desires? What are the desires that fuel the existence of a smartphone? And how are those desires distorting the way I relate to the world? In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes this. Finally, brothers. Notice the family language again. Finally, brothers. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Our chief desire, our chief desire should be desire for fellowship with God. And as we learned in the first sermon of this series, the prologue to this letter, fellowship with God is by extension fellowship with one another. We should resist anything and everything that threatens that fellowship. John presents us with two options. We can, we can love 
we cannot love both God and the world. We have to love either God or the world. And so rather than the desires of the flesh, right, we, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We hunger and thirst for the bread of life. Rather than the desires of the eyes, we, we feast our eyes on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And rather than the pride of life, we seek a path of humility and wisdom, which is actually the path to true glory. So to close, I, I want to go back to something John says in verses 13 and 14. On two different occasions, John says, you have overcome the evil one. The verb is in the perfect tense. That means that this overcoming has already happened. Our victory over evil has, has already been accomplished. As we withstand the corrupt desires and corrupt influences of the world around us, we can do so knowing that our victory over evil is not in the distant future. Our victory over evil has already happened in Jesus. We are engaged in a battle that has already been won. And we need to remember that even as we continue fighting. The world is powerless against a family of people who refuse to love it. The world is powerless against a family of people who refuse to love it. The world is powerless against a family of people who decide instead to give their love and devotion and desire to God and to one another. As John says in chapter 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He has already won the victory. And we who abide in the word of God, we who persevere through trial together as a family, we will share in that victory both now and and into eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for making us into your household, a family in Christ, brothers and sisters. You are a good, good Father to us. Jesus, thank you for leading the way, for demonstrating for us loving opposition to the world the sort of love that opposes and and has a greater vision for the future. Thank you for dying to see that vision come to fruition. Holy Spirit, keep us unified. Help us to resist the corrupt desires and corrupt influences of the world so that we can be the light you are calling us to be, so that we can be fruitful in our neighborhood. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.